Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 14, Capital in Revolt. Where we left off last week, the National Bloc, the coalition of right-wing political parties, and with it, Prime Minister Poincaré, finally fell from power. In his place, the so-called Cartel de Gauche, or the Cartel of the Left, uh, took charge under, under the leadership of the radical Edouard Herriot. With Herriot in charge of France starting in May 1924, there was quickly a change in policy coming from Paris regarding the continued Ruhr crisis. Germany by this time was falling apart, and that wasn't really good for anybody at this point. Luckily, around the same time, the left-wing Labour Party also came to power in the UK, so suddenly all the major players were much more inclined to make a deal. An international committee was assembled to defuse the crisis. For France, the principal matter of interest in the negotiations was still that Germany pay up. To that end, they would be granted a pile of loans from the U.S., which ostensibly were to invest in its own economy, but with the wink-wink implication that a lot of it would be used to pay the reparations to France. This would take shape in the form of the Dawes Plan, which provided American funding to Germany in order to streamline getting its economic house in order. The other item of interest was that it was agreed that the French army decamp from the Rhineland entirely, which the Herriot government was all too happy to do, a process which began in August 1924 and would be completed after a year's time. With the prospect of American money flowing through Germany to France, there wasn't a huge reason to keep a coercive occupation force in place. Herriot was probably doubly relieved to get that little problem into the rearview mirror, because France was about to hit its own economic crisis. So, now Germany was going to begrudgingly pay their reparations using loans coming from America, which, okay, might not be optimal for Germany, and we'll cover that on their episodes, but that does mean France would start to see some reliable payments. France, though, still has its own debts to pay off. Keep in mind that you have the World War I debts, and then an even larger pile of debt taken out in the five years since to service those loans and also pay for reconstruction. Unfortunately, the vast majority of French politicians were trained as lawyers and not as economists. They really didn't have the foundational knowledge on the topic to navigate the debt crisis that was building year after year since the end of the war. To his credit, Poincaré had seen the problem, but he was single-mindedly focused on making sure that money coming from Germany would be the solution to the problem. You might be thinking to yourself, why don't they just try to raise taxes and raise revenue to pay off those crippling debts? Oh, <laughs> you poor naive fool. The government is composed of national elites and friends of the national elites. They really didn't want to raise taxes, even in the face of a financial breakdown. Now, this isn't to say that the idea of new taxes hadn't been suggested during the conservative-controlled years. In 1923, the financial ministry had begged Parliament to raise billions of francs in taxes and was rebuffed. The prospect of the left wing of Parliament taking control in 1924 might have offered the prospect of revenue being boosted, uh, but keep in mind that in this time and place, our radicals, who were the centerpiece of that coalition, uh, very much like to put the center in center-left, and were quite comfortable with their privileged positions in society. The socialist wing of the coalition, for their part, were all in favor of raising taxes on the rich, as well as reducing interest rates on government debt, which would make it cheaper for the nation to borrow and pay back its debts. 
But the radicals, for all their social leftism, were in no mood for this, as many of its members were, one, already well-off and didn't want to pay more in taxes, and two, held public debt themselves and would turn less of a profit after a reduction in interest rates. Instead, they proposed consumption taxes, another word for sales taxes. The socialists rejected this, as sales taxes always disproportionately hit the poor harder than the rich. Everyone has a pretty set amount they absolutely have to consume. For the poor, it's already hard to meet their baseline. Otherwise, they wouldn't be considered poor. For the rich, it isn't so hard. So raising taxes when purchasing things like food or clothes is always going to be worse for the lower classes. Uh, pretty much from the start of its time in power, the Hario government was going to be stuck in a deadlock between the socialist wing and the radical uh, centrist wing. Uh, and yes, this is kind of one of the parts of the podcast I really enjoy, saying phrases like radical centrist wing. Now, this all has the makings of a monetary Greek tragedy. Uh, but really, this shouldn't be too surprising for us by now. Uh, the national elites were certainly patriotic back in those days, and certainly were willing to fight wars over national pride. Uh, but they were totally unwilling to open up their pocketbooks and actually pay out money that they had on hand, even when the objective was to rebuild after the very war they had fought on the pretext of national pride. A chronic problem facing the nation's finances was also the fact that there was widespread tax evasion among the elites as well. I know, it shouldn't be surprising as it happens everywhere at every time, but it meant that income taxes accounted for less than a quarter of the national income, which given the scale of the mounting crisis was unsustainable. This feeling was made manifest during the Hario years of 1924 to 26, as the wealthy of the country started taking huge portions of their fortunes out of banks and either sent it abroad or just converted it into gold. The leftists couldn't even get a tax plan in place, but just the bare hint of increases drove a currency flight out of the nation. This is a kind of a point that I'm going to be coming back around to again and again during the 20s. Namely, the mere specter of anything even vaguely socialistic was enough to drive national elites into irrational behavior purely to safeguard their fortunes. Now, we have the elites of France engaging in what basically amounted to blackmail on a national level. The mass withdrawals of currency left the banks without money to operate and crippled the financial sector, not just for the national government, but for the average citizens as well. In a democracy, it would be hoped that public rage at this sort of thing would be sufficient that the elites would hesitate from deliberately sabotaging the national economy. But, well, oh boy. Stop me if you've heard this one. The national media, which was reporting on these events, was largely controlled by these very same elites who were forcing the crisis. So, if you go to a mainstream French newspaper, well, it'd have a, it would have a lot to say about how raising taxes just wasn't realistic, and those proposing it in government would be just crazy to do so. Which makes all this sound very familiar in modern day. The Herriot government was thus blamed when the inevitable happened, and the franc was devalued, meaning that more francs were printed and put into the economy, which caused inflation to accelerate. It was a natural occurrence given that huge sums of cash were owed, on top of the banks now needing even more to counteract all the money being withdrawn from them. It was a simple case of the market needing more money pumped into it. Of course, this played right into the hands of the economic conservatives. Mounting inflation would certainly hurt them, but more importantly, it would affect the common Frenchmen when they went to buy basic goods and all the prices had exploded. 
all this economic chaos finally led to a political coup. So far, I've only really talked about the French Parliament in the, in the Third Republic. Well, there was a Senate, too, and I've deliberately avoided talking about them so far. That body was the upper house of government, composed of representatives appointed by councils and the localities they come from, not by direct elections. They did not assist in the running of government, they did not form cabinets, and they were mostly a conservative check to the parliament. So they really didn't do a whole lot. But it was at this moment in April 1925 that they stepped in to act as a really big check and remove Herriot as prime minister. This did raise the question of if this uh, French Senate could actually do that, and the response was nobody was really sure. Many supporters urged Herriot to resist the order to resign, but Herriot, a consummate centrist, ignored this and agreed to step down. Less than a year in, and the left-leaning bloc in Parliament uh, would have to appoint another prime minister. All this because the nation's moneyed interests pointedly refused to aid the country getting back on sure footing again. Now, I'm obsessing over this not just to decry a terrible example of mismanagement and social corruption, although I'm not passing up the opportunity to do so, uh, but what this should be demonstrating for the purposes of our narrative is that the Third Republic in France was caught firmly in the grip of a political class that was also joined at the hip with the business class of the country. Both groups were strongly resistant to leftist politics, and even the center-left radicals were guarded against the socialists when it came to fiscal matters. This conservative dominance from above created an environment where whenever leftism came to the political forefront, fiscal conservatives would patch up their differences to fight tooth and nail against them. Now, Herriot's resignation did not lead immediately to the conservative wing coming back to power. It was a way more demoralizing and grinding process. The leftist coalition replaced him with Paul Penlevier, a largely inconsequential figure as prime minister, but who later as minister of war was a key figure in starting the construction on the Maginot Line. Uh, he held onto power from April to November of 1925. In that time, he failed to come to an accommodation with the business elites, who didn't care to do business with any political faction that was allied with the socialists. As a result, the inflation crisis continued unabated for months, and he too was forced to resign. Who did they pick to replace him? It's our old buddy, Briand. I mentioned earlier that one of the problems with this whole economic crisis was that most French politicians were hopeless when it came to economics. Well, may I present to you Exhibit A. Briand was a charmer and a diplomat, which didn't really help when it came to fiscal emergencies. In his backhanded defense, he never really got a chance to tackle the crisis, as his cabinets kept falling apart around him, and he spent most of his time trying to find bodies for ministry positions that nobody wanted. By July 1926, he was out again. Now, by this time, the situation had grown critical. More loans were coming due, and raising new loans to pay them still wasn't an option. The Bank of France, a quasi-private institution, informed the government that more money was not forthcoming. The franc by this time was being exchanged at 50 to a dollar, which meant that it had lost 80% of its pre-war value. The savings of the common people were being wiped out, and they started taking to the streets of Paris, which, I'll be honest, I'm a little surprised it took them this long. They raged against the ineffectual government and the upper class that they had witnessed exacerbating the crisis. Herriot was again called in to form a government, but the mob by this time had had enough. Right-wing groups taking inspiration and organizational cues from Mussolini's black shirts 
marched outside the government buildings along the CN, and the police had to be called in to bar their advance. They were advocating publicly for the dissolution of the Republic and the government that had so badly failed them in their supposed years of triumph after the, after the war. Perio's latest attempt at forming a government was rejected, and everything started crumbling around Parliament. This time, the radicals ditched out on their socialist allies and approached the national bloc about a compromise candidate. Parliament wound up bringing Poincare back into office. At this time, he was 65 and nearing the end of his energies, but he received the full backing of the Parliament, minus the far-left elements. Five former prime ministers agreed to serve in his cabinet, including Herriot and Briand. This setup was perfectly acceptable to the business leaders. They knew of Poincaré as one of their own, a man who would not rock the boat without reason. Almost incredibly, he was able to push forward the tax increases that had eluded every previous government, including his own. Now, this might seem surprising, given how the business elites had pushed the Republic to the brink just a moment ago over the issue of new taxation. But that resistance was primarily due to who was prospectively doing the taxing. Poincaré was trusted to serve their long-term interests. The socialists, on the other hand, were constantly talking not only of vastly expanded taxes, but nationalizing industries left and right. From their perspective, if they had agreed to a tax increase, even a minor one, with Herriot, then that would merely be the first in a long line of dominoes to fall. Poincaré would do only what was absolutely necessary. Secondly, the initial tax increases took the form of sales or consumption taxes, which again would not hit the upper classes too hard and would keep the lower classes working harder for less. There were also tax increases on farmers as well, which again would not affect most of the business community. After these changes, Poincaré did manage to secure further increases on taxes affecting the upper class, specifically a 5% increase in corporate taxes, which rose to 50% overall, and a 9% increase to taxes on foreign stock payouts, going to 25% overall, which was not exactly a wealth redistribution, and compared to the noise the socialists were making in the previous couple of years, was really just a small price to pay. As a result of these increases, government revenue shot up, and by the end of 1926, the fiscal crisis had passed, which just goes to show how needless the whole thing had been, given that it was solved by very moderate increases in uh, revenue. For the elites, though, it was great. Uh, The crisis had passed, and the socialists had been knocked out of power. But there were also some long-term consequences to be considered as well. Uh, The most immediate was the effect of inflation on the normal population. For years, prices had increased as the franc lost value, and merely keeping up with day-to-day expenses wiped out the savings of many families. And that was the families who actually had savings. Those who did not simply went increasingly without in these years. The increase in consumption taxes in 1926 came as a further blow to the household finances of most of the nation. Finally, there was also a crippling blow to national morale in general. The country had wanted to hurry up and get back to normal as quickly as possible in the post-war years. But instead, there was just a rapid turnover in governments, with seven prime ministers since Clemenceau, and three of those men serving that position twice, although Herriot's four-day stint the second time around doesn't count for much beyond showing how bad things had gotten. The nation had been badly split also by the occupation of the Ruhr, and the adventure only helped diminish the nation's self-confidence when it came to international politics. Financial crisis only made that crisis of confidence worse, as the value of the currency fell apart. They had seen what had happened over in Germany with hyperinflation, and there was a very real fear it would happen at home in France as well. 
Now, France was and is a prideful nation. The franc had been one of those sources of pride. Most people did not follow the comings and goings of high finance, but they understood that the franc was a well-respected and valuable currency in the world. To watch its value plummet at this juncture created a sensitivity to a weak franc that would cause problems in the future, when having a weak currency actually made a degree of economic sense. And the weak franc actually helped out exporters a great deal at this time. When inflation is high and the native currency worth less, all of a sudden French goods became more enticing to foreign buyers. With the franc weakened, all of a sudden France experienced a boom in exports and businesses saw fresh expansion. And now that Poincaré was stabilizing the political situation and ensuring the socialists would be kept away from power, uh, the upper class could safely return its money back to its home banks and start uh, investing in further expansion. You might guess that these silver lining benefits of the upcoming recovery were not shared uniformly. You would be correct. They definitely weren't. The upper classes enjoyed a great boom in prosperity in the late 20s. Unfortunately, there was not a corresponding increase in the standard of living for the lower classes. Indeed, those who had seen their savings wiped out or their already impoverished existence made worse drove many into the arms of the leftists. However, there was still a long way to go before this could be translated into social or electoral change. Part of the problem was that workers' unions in France had been badly affected back in May 1920 when a general strike across the country had been attempted by the CGT, the largest union in France at the time. The strike was a disaster as it got no backing in Parliament and businesses refused to give an inch. The CGT fell apart immediately thereafter and other unions did not follow their example, preferring to stay quiet but still in existence. A big issue was chronic distrust among French workers for established institutions, whether they be political or labor unions. Throughout the decade, 9 out of 10 workers would not be part of a union, something that badly harmed their ability to take any collective action. It also meant they wouldn't see much material improvement with the economic boom, and the response of French workers to their economic difficulties was more often than not political disengagement. This resulted in a sizable body of the population that had no real faith in the Republic anymore. Plus, they had little stake in it, and they weren't in a hurry to throw in with anybody to change any of that. So, that was a big challenge for the left. For the poor, their misery was magnified by higher prices and taxes. For the slightly better off, they lived much more precariously for the same reasons, and they had to deal with the loss of their savings. The voting populace in general would take a further leftward swing going in the future, while the same moneyed interests that opposed that swing in Parliament was even more committed to fighting back any perceived socialist agenda than ever before. The price of getting the crisis resolved after a years-long and embarrassing delay was society becoming far more divided and polarized than it had been coming out of the war. The left soaked up new members who had found themselves pushed further into the proletariat, while the moneyed interests and fearful members of the middle class who had weathered the crisis lurched to the right to fend off the haunting specter of socialism. Both sides of this expanding divide, the Republic itself seemed more and more disconnected and ineffectual. The Parliament was gridlocked and could only effectively spring to action when forced to, like in 1926. That was only after the financial and political crisis had already been building since the end of World War I, and was only kind of, sort of, resolved after a full seven years. In those seven years, France had been forced to grovel for loans from disinterested Americans they had hounded the Germans and done everything they could to shake that country down for the money that politicians believed would solve all their problems. In doing so, they had alienated the British, who were France's most viable ally. 
French adventurism in the Rhineland and the Ruhr divided public opinion so badly that they were never again able to take the initiative on their own. France, the second largest empire on the planet, found itself becoming a reactive power both internally and externally. This, though, wasn't fully grasped immediately. France had no big kick-me signs stuck to them, and for the time being, the French army was an insurmountable obstacle for anyone in Europe. The problem was, though, that there was little appetite to exert any of their power, because the politicians were divided and rudderless, and because the people who elected them were suffering and fearful, because the nation had been scarred and indebted in a war for survival. The turnaround in the economy after 1926 would create the impression of strength and prosperity, which, relative to much of the world, it certainly was. But like much of the world enjoying the 1920s boom, was also very fragile. A big issue of the period was the lack of strong leaders in French politics to rally around. You will have noticed how quickly prime ministers were deposed in the 1920s. Poincaré was virtually the only one who achieved anything close to stability, and he was the arch-moderate-slash-conservative whose most proactive attempt to break the uh, political and economic impasse was the Ruhr invasion that helped bring down his first government of the 20s. Poincaré would settle into a less stormy premiership from 1926 to 29, leading the National Bloc faction to another election victory in 1928. Aging and having accepted that his country should not act unilaterally in the world, he dropped his open hostility to Germany and opened up the possibility of security based on diplomacy over displays of power. In that vein, he opted to let Briand continue his policy of reconciliation with the Germans that he had started when working to end the Ruhr crisis. Briand, as Minister of Foreign Affairs, worked tirelessly to secure peace during the remaining years of the 20s. Probably his crowning achievement came during October 1925, when the major powers assembled representatives in the town of Locarno, Switzerland. The Germans, coming out of the Ruhr debacle badly humbled, wanted to try and normalize relations. Briand himself had come to the conclusion that his successors after World War II would also come to, namely that Germany was always going to be a major power in Europe, and France was not capable of dictating the terms of their relationship in the long term. Ergo, some attempt at a partnership was called for in order to not only preserve peace in Europe, but also to set the tone of diplomacy in the continent moving forward. Briand's opposite number in Germany, Gustav Stressmann, made Briand an offer that stabilized French-German relations until the rise of the Nazis in 1933. With the reparations issue behind them, Stressman offered to voluntarily renounce German claims on territory lost in the West after the war, but pointedly kept the door open on revisions in the East. The UK agreed to back this arrangement, and Briand happily accepted the deal. With the Locarno Treaty signed off on, there was finally genuine peace among the great powers. Hindsight being what it is, the treaties were not a long-term success, although in the short term, the momentary triumph of diplomacy was an international relief. There was also the little issue that France kind of left its eastern buddies hanging out to dry, and specifically did not guarantee the current borders of Poland and Czechoslovakia. They were very self-conscious that it had been de facto agreed that some of their land was probably going to be transferred to Germany sometime in the future, and were not happy about it. The French tried to make assurances to them and promised to come to their defense in the case of any attack, but the two states took it as a sign not to rely on France and would continue to maintain their diplomatic distance. This equivocation on the eastern states would never actually stop and would cost France dearly down the road. The immediate success of Locarno, though, created a palpable sense of relief in Europe, as finally the major powers were playing nice with each other. 
It also led Briand to continuously work towards ever more ambitious attempts at a permanent peace. Most notable was the Kellogg-Briand Pact in 1928, which formally outlawed war. That treaty, plus Briand's proposals of a European Union, are topics I'll cover in an episode covering the various world peace attempts during the 20s. Unfortunately, most of these efforts were still in their infancy by the time the Great Depression got going in 1929 and absolutely ruined everything. Socially and politically, the second half of the 1920s were ones of soul-searching and regrouping. With the National Bloc in a firm leadership role, the Radicals and Socialists each tried to find a way to break the impasse. The Radicals regrouped under Edouard Deladier, but were split by indecision on how to move forward and just what policies they even wanted to push, and mostly just attempted to entice moderate Socialists to form a a coalition. The Socialists, for their part, were fraying at the seams with some becoming more receptive towards an open alliance with the radicals, and even talking about abandoning Marxism as one of their core tenets, while others drifted further towards the communists. It was all kind of a mess. Now, the dedicated socialists and the communists uh, were also stymied in 1927, when Poincaré pushed through an electoral change where it would be easier for votes to go to a second-round runoff election. This meant, when the Marxists couldn't achieve a clear victory in the initial vote, they were probably going to lose the second, as everyone not in the Marxist demographic would unite behind any candidate that wasn't them. Notably, there was no significant fascist movement active in France during these years, probably due to the fact that the standard conservatives proved capable enough of suppressing the left on their own. When Poincaré resigned in 1929 due to health concerns, there was no opening for a different coalition, and after a brief spell with Briand as a caretaker, the center-right André Tardieu took over in November 1929, which was just in time to watch the Depression unfold abroad. And this is where I'll leave France for now. The nation is in the midst of an economic boom papering over terrible inequalities, with a rickety political establishment prone to instability and resistant to structural reform. France at this time is still very much a preeminent power, but that is mostly due to the continued weakness of those around it. The key takeaways of this era is that internally the interests of the elites are served before the main populace to an extent that is almost self-destructive. This in turn created a loss of the state's legitimacy that was never really regained in the 30s. Internationally, France's lack of confidence in its own abilities uh, have seen it shrink back and alienate potential allies in Central Europe while binding itself to collective security with the British and Germans, neither of which could be counted on to put French interests first. The agreements reached to secure this new peace were perfectly fine as long as all parties were honest, but sadly for France, That won't hold true once we hit the second phase of this podcast. But that's all for the future. I know I haven't spent all that much time on France, and for anyone disappointed, just take to heart that things weren't quite so bad there compared to most everybody else. And we'll be touching on them again when we leave Europe and look more in-depth at their colonial empire, and there's always the 30s to look forward to one day. But join me next week as we start on France's erstwhile ally as we delve into the start of the British experience during this period. As always, thank you very much for listening. Mm